This is Medieval Death Trip for May 9th, 2017, episode 39, To the Lists. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. This episode is going to be rather different from our normal format. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, at MDT Podcast, you might have seen uh, the weekend before last that my show recording plans were nixed by about 18 inches of water in my basement. Uh, but that turned out to be kind of a blessing in disguise. I've been planning a big three-part feature about just some of the times when St. Cuthbert's body was dug up, and I guess I'll go ahead and give you a preview. Uh, The first two episodes will feature two different accounts of the translation of his body into a new shrine at Durham Cathedral in 1104, and the third episode will look at the archaeological examination of his tomb conducted by James Rain in 1827, Uh, who was previously featured on this show for his examination of the remains of the Venerable Bede in that same exhumation back in episode 22 concerning Alfred the Bone Hunter. Indeed, this three-parter is kind of an extended version of that episode, um, but with a different body at the center. My plan is to release these three episodes over three weeks uh, so that you won't have to wait as long between each one uh, and to kind of make up for having missed some weeks so far this year. Anyway, while the first episode is largely done, uh, I actually have a book winging its way to me through Interlibrary Loan that I think is going to be very important for the third episode uh, and may well have stuff I want to draw on to use in the second episode as well. I requested this book over a week ago, um, and it's coming from another library in my own town. usually takes two days to get a book this way, uh, and right now it's still listed as In Transit with no estimated delivery date. Uh, for who knows what reason. So if I hadn't been flooded out last week, I probably would have put out an episode promising two more episodes right away, uh, and would have made myself into a liar right quick. The other complication, besides library couriers going astray, uh, is a happier one. I'll be heading off this week to attend the 52nd International Congress on Medieval Studies up at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. I'll say more about this conference in a bit, uh, but its current relevance is that I realized I'll be there from Wednesday through Sunday, which makes recording another episode within a week a bit tricky, uh, and I won't be able to bank episodes up in advance since I'm still waiting on my book. So that's all an awful lot of preface to basically just say that this today is a bit of a grab bag episode uh, that I'm organizing around the theme of lists. Not, as it happens, lists in the sense of jousting tournaments, which might have been expected for a medieval podcast, but lists in the conventional modern sense, items in a series. We're going to look at three lists, and to be honest, uh, none of them are medieval primary sources, uh, as we would normally feature, but they're all medieval adjacent, and I think they're all interesting. I will just quickly say to new listeners, uh, especially anyone trying out the show after uh, meeting me at Kalamazoo, this isn't a typical episode. You might try out the previous episode for something a bit more in our normal vein, uh, or look ahead to the first of the Cuthbert's Body series, which will be showing up a little later on in May. But let's get on to our first list, in which we briefly survey some of the many meanings of the word list, which wasn't a list I was planning on including until I went to the Oxford English Dictionary to see what the etymology of list in the jousting sense was, 
Uh, I guessed it might derive from the idea that combatants had to enroll in the tournament and officially register their name on a list of some form. Um, and I was completely wrong about that uh, hypothesis. But what I learned was not only the correct etymology of jousting lists, but also that list has a crazy number of meanings, um, partly because there are a whole lot of different lists, etymologically speaking, that all wind up clumped together under the same modern spelling. Uh, so here are some of them, just sticking with the nouns. There are also a whole bunch of different meanings for list as a verb, of course. Um, I'll do these nouns in OED order, uh, which I suppose conveys some degree of historical information all by itself. Sense 1.1. Hearing. The sense of hearing. This is an obsolete usage, which appears to have died out in the 15th century or so. It comes from Old English hlist, H-L-Y-S-T, uh, which also gives us the verb listen. I'm not sure why list as a name for the sense lost out over time to the word hearing, uh, which also has an Old English root in the verb hieran, but obviously it did. Since 1.2, with the same basic etymology, list can also refer to the ear itself as a sense organ. Since 2, art, craft, cunning, often in the phrase by or with list. This comes from the Old English word list, L-I-S-T, uh, which had precisely this definition. This is another obsolete meaning uh, that also died off in around the 15th century, uh, not making the transition from Middle English into Early Modern English. Since three, this one is kind of a mess, divided into two Roman numeral subsenses, and each of those is divided into several numbered senses, and most of the numbered senses are then broken down into A, B, C variations. The gist of sense three in the first category is border, edging, or strip, and in the second category it is boundary. This form also derives from an Old English word, lista, L-I-S-T-E, with a long I, uh, meaning a fringe or border. It seems to have its longest lifespan in specific senses related to borders or fringes on fabrics or selvage, where it continues to the present day. But it's also used to mean a stripe of color, a strip of land, a part in the hair. The Romantic poets seem to have used it that way, though apparently they did so by borrowing the word back into English from... Uh, an Italian usage, and it's also used as a name for the outer lobe of the ear, which somewhat overlaps with sense 1.2. In the boundary category, here's where we get our jousting lists. The specific sub-meaning is, quote, the palisades or other barriers enclosing a space set apart for tilting, hence a space so enclosed in which tilting matches or tournaments were held. The OED notes that the English usage is probably influenced by the similar-sounding Old French word lisa, uh, which meant palisades, though the French word comes from obscure but Latin-based roots, as opposed to the Germanic roots of the English word. This lisa form survives in other modern Romance languages, uh, as in the Spanish word lisa, meaning a competition or contest. Since 4.1, pleasure, joy, delight, an obsolete usage, uh, though it's preserved as a deliberately archaic form in sense 4.2, appetite, craving, desire, longing, inclination, uh, a form which is used by some poets at least into the 19th century, though I'll illustrate it with a quote from a much earlier but more famous name, John Milton, who writes in his Of Reformation, I have done it neither out of malice nor list to speak evil. 
This sense of list goes back to yet a different Old English word, the verb listan, L-Y-S-T-A-N. There's a strong link there to the word lust, um, which of course we still use to mean appetites or desires today. Though even in Old English, the forms were becoming differentiated with L-U-S-T, lust, uh, as a noun um, being its own word with its own set of derivatives um, alongside listan with a Y. Since 5.1, the careening or inclination of a ship to one side, and since 5.2 is just that same thing extended to anything that might be leaning over, like a building or a person. The OED says the etymology is obscure for this sense, um, but it could well be a metaphorical application of sense number four, i.e. the ship desires or longs for the direction it's leaning in, or indeed it inclines that way a word that also has both a spatial directional sense and a sense of desire or longing. Sense 6. Finally, at sense 6, we come to the common meaning of list, quote, a catalog or role consisting of a row or series of names, figures, words, or the like. It looks like this usage actually comes back into English in the early modern period through borrowing from cognates in the Romance languages but its roots are in sense four, a border or strip, uh, in this case referring to a physical strip or roll of paper. The OED's earliest citations come from Shakespeare, uh, so the dominant modern sense of list is actually one of the word's most recent developments. Except for maybe sense seven, uh, which also dates back to the early 1600s, but doesn't last, except uh, perhaps as a dialect word. This is list meaning, quote, the flank of pork, a long piece cut from the gammon. Uh, these origins are also obscure. It may well be just another specialized sense of uh, sense three, being a strip from a pig. Um, it might also be related to the Dutch word lies, L-I-E-S, or the German word leiste, uh, both of which have, as at least one of their meanings, groin, which would be adjacent to the gammon or haunch. The OED doesn't specify what dialect this word survives in, uh, if it even still does. This OED entry hasn't been updated since 1903. And I can tell you that Googling pork list does not reveal relevant linguistic results. But you do get a lot of recipes. So that's our list of lists. Uh, there's actually an eighth noun sense, but it's a variant spelling of the word lisa, another French borrowing related to thread and weaving. Uh, and that barely counts as a definition of list in my book. Our second list is really the primary content for this episode, uh, and I'll give it the featured text treatment. Um, and it is from a primary source, albeit indirectly. So one of the major sources for this upcoming Cuthbert series is James Rain's account of his exhumation of the saint's remains, as given in his book, St. Cuthbert, with an account of the state in which his remains were found upon the opening of his tomb in Durham Cathedral in the year 1827. We'll hear Rain's description of his findings in the third episode of the Cuthbert series, but right now I'm going to share an extended footnote that Rain includes. As a footnote, it's the kind of indulgence into almost entirely irrelevant material that is nonetheless delightful, that sadly I just don't think would fly in scholarly publishing today. But listeners to this show can probably guess that I am deeply sympathetic to this impulse to share, even if it means not rigorously adhering to the topic at hand. What Rain embeds in his study is a selection of extracts from Durham's 16th and 17th century visitation books. It was one of the duties of the diocese authorities to go around the different parish churches in their jurisdiction and see to their maintenance, 
both physical and spiritual. Um, the latter meaning that they had to correct immoral behavior or other offenses. Guilty parties would be presented at these visiting ecclesiastical courts, and the charges would be recorded in visitation books. So these visitation books become a kind of early modern police blotter, which, I hope you'll agree, is a thing of beauty. So context for the footnote, Rain's main text is narrating the flight of the community of Durham as they evacuated the body of St. Cuthbert from Durham briefly back to Lindisfarne in order to escape William the Conqueror's army during the harrowing of the North. In detailing their itinerary in this journey, Rain names one of their evening stops, Tuggall, uh, provides a line drawing of its surviving ruins, and appends this multi-page footnote by way of description of the place. Uh, and I'll read it now. Um, Rain interjects into the list at a few points, uh, so to make it a bit easier to follow, uh, I'll give Rain's comments a bit of echo so that he speaks with the editorial voice of God. The primary source quotes will be given in my unmodified voice, um, and they're in early modern English, so no translation is necessary, though we might run into a few archaic words. The chapel of Tuggle, of the ruin of which I have given a representation above, was doubtless afterwards built upon the spot where the saint rested for the night. When it stood in repair, it constituted a chapel of ease to Bamborough. It was last presented to in 1630, but the young husbands of Tuggle Hall and Buttle made it their burying place within the memory of persons still alive. Those of my readers who are versed in ecclesiastical architecture will at once discover that it has pretensions to very high antiquity. The following extracts from the visitation books in the Registry of Durham are highly characteristic of the period and place. 31 May, 1578, Tuggle. They lack a pulpit, a communion cup of silver, a Bible, etc. 17 March, 1599, Thomas Forster presented for striking the minister of Tuggle upon the head with his dagger. 16 October 1601. Thomas Hopper presented, for that he shot a pistol when all the congregation were coming out of the church at Tuggle in the midst of them. Eodem Tempore, John Forster of Tuggle presented, for riding into the church on horseback in service time. 11 August 1609. They want a Bible of the largest volume, a convenient seat for the minister, the table of the Ten Commandments, a decent pulpit cloth and cushion, a cover for the communion cup, their church porch is uncovered, the one of their bells is loose. I cannot refrain from throwing together a few more extracts from the documents before me, however little they may be connected with St. Cuthbert and his wanderings. They tend much to illustrate the manners and proceedings of the period, and in this I rest my apology. Annick, Mary Forster, a notorious usurer, for the loan of twelve pence, she taketh one pence weekly. Rock, 13 October, 1593. Jeanette Farrow presented, supposed to be a witch, and hath spoken bad speeches tending to witchcraft. Felton, 15 April, 1604. William Lyle, etc., presented that they were tracing of foxes and hares on Sunday. Ilderton, 15 October, 1601. 
George Hunter presented to be a mediciner of Stephen Kramer's cows by going to the house of Elizabeth Brown and there cut a piece of the turf of the house and asked the milk for God's sake, and so it was got again. Halliston, 24 July, 1604. Bartram Pott and Thomas Gibson, churchwardens, presented that they do stand excommunicate, and so have done these two years last past, and say that when they, the ecclesiastical authorities, of Durham do send them horse and money, they will then come to be absolved. Lesbury, 15 October, 1601. George Carr of Lesbury presented that he, being a churchwarden, assaulted Elizabeth Foster in the churchyard and drew blood of her. Longhouton, 15 April, 1604. Elizabeth Faucus presented for calling the minister's wife Priest's Gib. Workworth, 4 November, 1600. George James hath a stipend to repair the church hedges and lets them decay, and buried one so shallow in the grave that he was almost pulled out of the ground by dogs. Balmborough, 21 February, 1595. The curate keepeth ale in his house. Barrick, 1620. Rowland Braidforth presented. He said that Mr. Parkinson, late mayor of Barrick, was in hell, and Mr. Fairley, porter there, and that they had sent manic letters and willed Mr. Saltonstall to come and marveled he stayed so long. Norham, 11 July, 1578. Nicholas Palmer presented, detected. He ministered in a milk bowl. Question, what is meant? Wooler, 21 December, 1610. Rowland Scott presented for quarreling and drawing his dagger on John Jackson and for appointing combat in the church at the communion table. This is worse than the story of the men who, in the recollection of persons still alive, or not long since dead, retired from an alehouse in the village and finished their game of whist upon this selfsame table. Bywell, February 1595. Henry Nicholson presented... He reporteth that they are better which are out of the church than within it. Morpeth, 14 October, 1601. Robert Todd presented, suspected to be a mediciner of cattle or a charmer of things hurt. Stannington, 13 December, 1590. The wife of Thomas Gray presented for turning of the riddle for things lost and stolen. The riddle is well known as a shallow circular sieve used in the process of winnowing before the introduction of machinery. When the farmer took his stand upon a hillock with his newly thrashed corn upon his winnowing sheet and with his weight, riddle, and sieve snuffed in the winds like a heifer in the Georgics and took his place and position accordingly. The process of divination by the riddle was an easy one. The point of a pair of shears, such as are used in sheep shearing, was stuck into the outer circumference of the wooden girth of the riddle, and the hole was suspended by a cord running through the handle of the shears and held up by the diviner, who had only to say, inserting the names of the parties and specifying the thing stolen, by St. Peter and by St. Paul, if A. B. has stone C. D.'s cow, turn about riddle and shears and all. Of course, the slightest motion in the article suspended decided the guilt of the accused. If, therefore, the trier had spent the preceding night over his cups, the defendant's character for honesty was necessarily gone forever. St. Andrews, Newcastle, 6 February, 1603. John Dalton and Stephen Reesley presented 
that upon Easter day last, presently they had received the Holy Communion, they too went into the vestry, and there drunk a whole pottle of wine, and being therefore reproved by the curate, the said John Dalton called him Scurvy Knave. But let me return to the original subject of my note. The proprietors of Tuggall, soon after the conquest, doubtless from a recollection of the honor which had been conferred upon the estate by the temporary residence of the saint, bestowed upon the monks from Durham, who sojourned at Farn Island, an annual present of five quarters of wheat to be received at Tuggall. So there we have some of the ecclesiastical crimes and misdemeanors of early modern Durham. Uh, I don't really have any commentary to add to it, except this one thing. About Nicholas Palmer, who ministered in the milk bowl. Rain puts a parenthetical question next to this, asking, what is meant? I don't know if he's playing dumb for the sake of propriety, uh, but I think we can formulate a pretty good guess about what ministering might be a euphemism for in this case. Well, maybe two guesses. Uh, that said, I've had no joy finding minister in any of the various slang and cant dictionaries I've searched through. Um, but I think the bigger question really is whether Nicholas's crime was misappropriating the milk bowl for other than its intended use, or if it means he was contaminating the milk uh, like a spiteful waiter. All right, for our final list, I'm looking ahead to the International Congress on Medieval Studies at Kalamazoo. I thought I'd share a little sampler of session and paper titles that will be presented there to give you a taste of what's happening in medieval scholarship right now. If you're not in academia but have always had your own professorial fantasies, uh, then maybe this will be a vicarious dip into the scholarly life. If you're in academia and haven't been to Kalamazoo, then this is an advertisement for why it might be an interesting conference to attend. If you're of the stripe that thinks academics all have their heads up their ivory towers, then probably some of the titles here are just going to confirm you in your contempt. And if you have no interest at all in what medievalists are talking about with each other these days, uh, then thanks for listening. Um, you can probably skip on to your next podcast now, um, but I hope you'll come back for the Cuthbert special later on in the month. Okay. I kind of have a spiel about academic conferences um, that I thought I was going to go into, but this episode's running a little longer than I anticipated, uh, so I'll spare you that. Um, other than just to suggest that maybe reading papers aloud is not the optimal method for disseminating knowledge in the 21st century, uh, nor a particularly great way to get good feedback on your ideas. But we're still doing it that way. Um, and I should say, for those of you who have never been to an academic conference, um, especially in the humanities, the sciences are more and more doing things differently, um, then that is what most conference sessions are. You'll have three to five scholars who will each read a draft of a paper they're working on, usually abridged and sometimes reworked for oral delivery, but often not. Uh, and then there will be a chance for other panelists and the audience to ask questions and make comments. Alternatively, you might have a roundtable, where the participants may have some prepared remarks, but the focus is much less on reading text to the audience and more on discussion. And if you can't tell by how I framed my descriptions, I much prefer roundtables to paper sessions as far as using 90 minutes effectively and engagingly goes. Uh, 
And you might also have a few workshop sessions where the audience uh, are usually more active participants in learning some kind of skill or engaging in some kind of activity. Uh, setting aside my misgivings about the format of humanities conferences, the sessions at Kalamazoo are an embarrassment of riches. Um, it, it goes beyond that, straight into a paradox of choice crisis. It makes me stressed out and unhappy uh, about how much I'm missing uh, by picking just one great-sounding panel to go to at a time. Let me give you an example. The sessions start on Thursday morning and go all day Friday and Saturday uh, and finish with a half day on Sunday. They're divided into blocks, 10 to 11.30, then 1.30 to 3, 3.30 to 5, and finally a few special sessions and social gatherings and special events between 5 and 9. And of course, there's a big dance on Saturday night. Uh, but let's start at the beginning, Thursday morning, 10 a.m. What am I going to pick to go to? There are 47 different sessions just in the 10 to 11.30 block on Thursday morning. 47. There are 573 sessions in total at the conference, uh, and that does not include all the after 5 p.m. evening events. It's a daunting array to anyone, um, but it's especially a nightmare for someone like me who really isn't a specialist. Uh, for what I do, be it as a creative writer who does some work in historical fiction, or as someone who might teach uh, medieval literature in a survey course, or as the person putting together this show... I'm interested in topics that are all over the place, um, and I'm not focused primarily just on one country or one century or one genre. Uh, in fact, even though I'm an English department person, I'm almost more interested in going to panels on medieval technology or archaeological findings or architecture or warfare, uh, because it's not like I'm starved for articles on Chaucer or Anglo-Saxon saints' lives. If I were a specialist in Chaucer or Anglo-Saxon saints' lives, then no doubt the specific arguments and theses of those panels would engage me deeply, and I'd want to be on the cutting edge of what's happening in my specialty. But my approach to Kalamazoo is to go for breadth, and to try to expose gaps in my knowledge. So anyway, of the 47 sessions for 10 a.m. on Thursday, here are six that make the top of my list uh, for possible options to attend. Session 4. Building Draw Bridges how to Keep Medieval Studies Alive in the K-8 through Classroom, a hands-on workshop. Featuring uh, the presentations Oh, the Medieval Places You'll Go, Children's Literature as Gateway Course, For Young Ladies and Lords, Medieval Matters for Third Graders, Medieval Board Games, Bringing the Entertainment of Medieval Children to the Modern Classroom, and How the Imperial Knights of Norco Charge into the Classroom. Now, the reality is that I'm not planning on teaching in a K-8 through classroom, so... This one's probably not going to be my winner, um, but I would be really excited to go to this panel and hear these ideas uh, if there weren't so much competition. Like session 14, Exploring Power, St. Cuthbert, Durham Cathedral, and the Prince Bishops. Uh, this features the papers Power in the Palatinate, the competing roles of St. Cuthbert, the Prince Bishops, and the Prior away from Durham Cathedral. The Misogyny of St. Cuthbert? Bishops, Monks, and Women at Durham Shrine. A Man of Such Strange Composition, Bishop Richard Neal and the Durham House Group. Well, I am presently working on a three-episode series on Cuthbert and Durham. Uh, perhaps I've mentioned it? Could I get something of immediate usefulness from this? Could be. Or maybe I'd rather go to Session 18, Authoring the Self, Autobiography and Auctoritas. 
uh, with the papers Exercising Paratextual Authority, Autobiographical Acts in Alfred of Einsham's Latin and Old English Prefaces, Gower's Self-Establishment as a Vernacular Author in the Confessio Amantis, Autobiographical Notes in Alfonso X's Cantigas de Santa Maria, Either Thou Art a Right Good Woman or Else a Right Wicked Woman, Problems of Authority in the Book of Marjorie Kemp. This one sounds a bit drier, uh, perhaps, but I'm very interested in medieval first-person narration and conceptions of self as narrator, uh, and it's relevant to a lot of the texts we look at here, so that one's tempting. But is it as tempting as Session 22, New Models of Presentation of Medieval Text, with the presentations Digital Tools for Manuscript Study, Collation and the Canterbury Tales, Adapting Chaucer for Modern Media, and New Media, New Editions, New Readers. Hey, this show is a new model of presentation for medieval texts. Uh, sounds like something I should be engaged with. Um, but then again, there's always session 41, Medieval Tools, a roundtable. This is a roundtable with scholars in textiles, medicine, medieval technology, broadly. Uh, this appeals directly to my fiction writer side, who wants to know more about the practicalities of daily life, uh, things that aren't always represented very clearly in ecclesiastical texts. Uh, plus, it's a roundtable, which gives it an edge over the paper sessions. There's also session 45, Relics and Reliquaries, Forms, Functions, Meanings, a roundtable. So another roundtable, this time on a subject that regularly comes up on this show. Uh, and to be honest, this one and the session on new models of presentation are the two I'm most vacillating between right now, and I still haven't made up my mind. I've looked through my conference program, and I don't think there's a single time slot on any day where I haven't highlighted at least four different panels to choose among. But that's my burden. Uh, it's one of those good problems to have, I guess. Anyway, here's a list of session titles from throughout the four days of the conference to give you a panorama of fields and topics from the rather general to the incredibly specific. When Medievalists Fictionalized the Middle Ages New Directions in Medieval Rural History Late Medieval Perspectives on Tolerance A Place at the Table, Material and Spatial Aspects of the Medieval Meal Would You Write More or What? The Quest to Publish Historically-Based Creative Writing in the Contemporary Literary Marketplace, A Roundtable Despair in the Middle Ages, A Roundtable The Craft Beer of Medievalism Popular Culture, the Middle Ages, and Contemporary Brewing Another roundtable. Soundscapes in medieval Occitania. Constructing race in Arthurian romances. Sex magic, past and present, imagined and real. Manuscripts and books unbound. Identification and recovery of fragments. Encounters with the paranormal in medieval Iceland. Two social concerns. Archaeology and experiment, moving beyond the artifacts. Uh, and here I want to share some, the three papers that are being presented um, because they just sound great. Symmetry and Asymmetry in Viking Age Dress. The Growth of Yeast and Mold on Viking Age Flatbread versus Modern Sliced Bread. And Minimalist Survival Gear, Three Points in Time. Back to the sessions. Fan Fiction in Medieval Studies. What do we mean when we say fan fiction? Romance Friends and Frenemies. Wolves Outside, Inside, and At the Medieval Door. Classical Philosophy in the Lands of Islam and Its Influence, a workshop. Dress and Textiles 1, Details from Documents. 
Teaching a Diverse and Inclusive Middle Ages, a panel discussion. Tricksters in Medieval and Early Modern Culture. Growing Up Medieval, the Middle Ages in Children's and Young Adult Literature. Animating the Medieval, Research on Animated Representations of the Middle Ages in Memory of Michael Insalda. Fancy Pincushions Part 2, A Demonstration. Uh, and here's the description of that. A demonstration of the findings from an ongoing experimental archaeology study on the ballistics complicity of war bows and arrows of the Hundred Years' War. Featured are a war bow, unbraced, from the study, as well as two war arrows from the study, an MR livery arrow and a Westminster-style shaft, to illustrate the weight and design on the shafts. Topics in Medieval Numismatics Landscape Approaches to the Plague Navigating Seas of Faith Authority and Religious Identity in the Mediterranean. Cognition and Emotion in Medieval Literature. Sustaining Vivid Medieval Studies programs in a time of diminished fiscal and faculty resources. A roundtable. Sounding Sentiment. Emotion in Late Medieval Song. A workshop. Medieval Games and Gender. Loneliness and Solitude in Medieval England. The Great Transition. Climate, Disease, and Society in the Late Medieval World. A roundtable. The Faith in One's Food. Food as an aspect of religious proselytization and polemic. Trading with infidels, legal approaches to interfaith commerce. Hell studies, hellish remixes. Eald Ente Yawork, Tolkien and the classical tradition. Monsters 1, material monsters. 12 angry Carolingians 1, anger management. Urban economies in the 14th century. Medieval bridesmaids, wedding, bedding, and bad behavior in romance. Millennials and Medieval Studies, a roundtable. Twelve Angry Carolingians, two. Not angry, just disappointed. Monsters, two. Immaterial monsters. Light and Darkness in Medieval Art, 1200 to 1450. Space, Place, and Disability, a panel discussion. Occult Capitals of Islam. Monsters, three. Monstrous Acts of Heroism, a roundtable. Greater than the sum of our arts. The Multitasking Life of the Lone Medievalist, a roundtable. Male Virginity, Before and After 1348, Prelude and Consequences of the Black Death. The Practical Medicine of Medieval Surgeons and Physicians. Female Friendship in Medieval Literature. Archaeology of Production and Power in the Middle Ages. Gray Matter, Brains, Diseases, and Disorders. Education and Society, Tools, Teachers, and Pupils in the Medieval World. So there are some of the things the Kalamazoo medievalists are going to be talking about this weekend, and it wouldn't be an academic conference without some paper titles that really work that colon, uh, the punctuation mark, that is. So here are some of the pop culture, pun, and punchline titles I spotted as I was working my way through the program. Author names have been omitted to protect uh, both the innocent and the guilty. Uh, a session title, Dead Poet Flighting Karaoke performances. Uh, that's flighting with a Y, as in an insult contest. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Elements of despair in late medieval religious literature. Top flight, also with a Y. Masculine panic and verbal confrontation. Just the tip. Holy phalluses and queer beheadings in medieval romance. Foul play. Birds and social bonds in Tyrius, Procne, and Philomela. A cell of one's own, recluses, hermits, and anchorites in the Carolingian world. A Gowan of one's own, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, canonicity, and audience participation. Virginia Woolf's pretty popular these days. 
Women Piercing Through the Medieval Fantasy Genre, a look at Tamara Pierce's influence on women in medieval fantasy. The Writing Dead, Letters, the Rule, and the Ethics of Lay Spiritual Instruction, circa 1000 to 1200. We Don't Need No Stinking Pope, Except to Call Crusades, the Crusader Kingdom of Canon Law in the 12th Century. The Vikings Are Due on Main Street, Norse Incursion into Minnesota's Literary Imagination. Burning Down the House, Status, Ethnicity, and Punishment of Female Arsonists in Anglo-Norman Ireland. Curiouser and less curious, some contrasting examples of the education plot in Old French verse romances. Here's a session title, Good for What Ails You, Alcohol in Medieval Medical Texts. A Game of Crows, Poe, Plagiarism, and the Ballad Tradition. The Birds and the Beads. Race, Sexuality, and Gender in Beads, De Cantica Canticorum, and Historia Ecclesiastica. That's, I like that one. Sticks and Stones and Undertones, Floris of Leon's Strategic Abuse of Amalarius of Metz. How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the King, Synthesis, Paradox, and Cultural Integration in Late Viking Age Kingship, circa 990 to 1050. Does This Stress Make Me Look Fat? Awkwardness in Thomas Hockley's Verse. I like that one too. Long Cool Woman with a Snake Tail, Jean Doris's Manipulation of the Serpentine in the Roman de Melusine. Avoiding the False Prophet, F-I-T, Gower in the International Business of Salvation. Walk Like an Egyptian, Magic Circles in Ancient Egypt from Mehen to Ouroboros. Spies Like Us, Tristan and Isolde's Hidden Observers. One Does Not Simply Walk into the Heavenly Jerusalem, the visualization of access and restriction on early Christian sarcophagi. Robin Hood with Disney Stood, a new biography of the outlaw in 1950s Hollywood. Make Carthage Great Again, the Council of Carthage of 525, Episcopal Authority and Monastic Privileges, Fifty Shades of Sion Abbey, and I think I have to give the prize to Erectile Dysmunction, Monastic Uses for the Old Irish Magical Anti-Viagra, uh, and I'm going to have to credit the author on the on this winner. That's from Philip Bernhardt House. Congratulations, uh, you won Kalamazoo. So I have to wrap up uh, because I have to start packing. If any of you uh, are also going to be at Kalamazoo this week, look for me. I'd love to say hi. Um, we'd normally answer our riddle from last episode here, uh, but since we're running long, um, and I picked that riddle to be at least tangentially relevant to our first Cuthbert episode... Um, I'm going to kick that can down the road, and we'll answer the riddle next episode. Until then, you can find out more about the show on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can email me there at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also follow me via the show on Twitter at MDTPodcast, um, and I'll try to post some pictures and updates from the conference to Twitter throughout the week. All right, the road calls, and I'm off. Thanks for listening. Uh, sorry. It's no erectile dysfunction, I know. <laughs>